Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. So hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I am really excited because today I am here with Jenny Blake. Jenny is an author, podcaster, and keynote speaker who loves helping business owners move from friction to flow through smarter systems powered by delightfully tiny teams. Her third book, Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business, launches March 22, 2022. Jenny's previous book, Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One, won the Axiom Award for Best Business Book in the Careers category in 2016. Licensing clients for her Pivot programs include Google and Chanel. She also hosts two podcasts, Free Time for Heart-Based Business Owners and Pivot with Jenny Blake with over 1 million downloads combined. And with that, I'd like to welcome Jenny. Thank you so much, Philip. I'm honored to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, just in terms of context, Jenny came onto my radar because she is the uh, mentor of a couple of my executive coaching clients. And uh, so I've been hearing about Jenny for years, and I'm really excited to have her on the podcast. And her her first book, Pivot, is amazing. And I think, personally, I think the word pivot actually came into popular nomenclature because of your book. That's my perspective. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. I mean, it, when I started working on the proposal and shopped it to Portfolio, it was called The Pivot Method in 2014, the book. Uh, nobody was talking about pivoting in a career sense. It was solely used in startup land. So some right. small part of me likes to think that I helped popularize it. it too in the sense of personal change. Yes, I really. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit, it's like, okay, now pivot is ubiquitous. Absolutely. <laughs> we all got a front row to how to pivot these last few years. So one of the things that you talk about, you talk about heart-based businesses a lot. What do you mean by a heart-based business? Heart-based business and business owners will optimize for things beyond just money and efficiency and growth for the sake of growth. I find that sometimes in the business press, startups, it's all about the exit, how much the company is making, how much the investors are pouring in, profitability, scale, and often at the cost of certain parties involved. So although Amazon is this huge behemoth, how are the work, how, the warehouse workers being treated? How much are they being paid? What are their working conditions like? Heart-based business is not just asking how much are we earning, but how are we operating? How are we treating everybody that's involved, whether it's clients, customers, community, the language that we use, and also the person right in the middle of it, the owner. How do we optimize for values like family and freedom and flexibility beyond just what shows up on the P&L? Do you think that that is that the, the spotlight has been shining on that a little brighter in the last couple of years because of COVID and people's reconsidering their entire work-life balance paradigm? <laughs> I guess I should say. Yes, and yes, I think that with so much burnout, we've been all handling so much stress and pressure that's now at a baseline of our lives of uncertainty mm. and risk and health concerns and for ourselves, for our family. And we do see businesses like B Corps and not, you know, there are there are realms of business and business education that are about shareholder capitalism, not just stakeholder capitalism. 
But I think now more than ever, people are hungry for ways to do things differently. And something that I felt has been missing in the entrepreneurial realm is how to run a business again, that isn't just all about the numbers and it's not just how big your audience is, but maybe how connected are they? And I find that a lot of sometimes business content denigrates the entrepreneur for having a lifestyle business. Like it's some cute, cutesy little thing or (laughs) something that, um, it is almost like insulting to the person leading it. But I think that every business could be a lifestyle business. And why on earth would we do anything if we were harming ourselves or others in the process? So I do think people are kind of hungry for a different way, a more um, spacious way of existing, living, Mm -hmm. working, running businesses. Do you think a business, when a business achieves a certain scale, the ability to be heart-based disappears? Such a good question. I mean, I love companies. I think we all study the ones like Patagonia who maintain really strong values as they grow. What I what I perceive gets harder is for the owners, like actually the managers in those businesses to stay with a lot of freedom and flexibility. So one of the reasons you mentioned in my bio, this phrase, delightfully tiny teams, I don't know about you, but I don't aspire to having a big team or a big business. I actually value deep work and creativity and alone time. And I used to work at Google. I remember looking up the ranks thinking, I don't want to get promoted. I don't want to be managing a whole tree of people under me. I don't want to be in all those meetings and writing performance reviews. So I also am very curious about, I mean, I don't know how those leaders at those companies do it, but I think it's, yes, they can be heart-centered, absolutely. But I do think that they give up some level of freedom once the business grows to a certain point unless they successfully kind of step aside, have someone else in the CEO role, and they have more of an advisory status. But that's what I at least perceive gets a little bit lost is the ability to be so custom for the owner's strengths as well as the business itself. Mm. Let's step back a little bit and talk about your evolution just a tad. Like you didn't wake up one day and become Jenny Blake, digital entrepreneur, forced to be reckoned with. You were obviously working for the man, working for Google at one point. So how did that transition happen? What was the what was the um, the watershed moment and where did that take you? Well, I've, I've always loved technology. I worked at a startup for two years as the first employee and then Google for five and a half. And when I started at Google, they only had 6,000 employees. So I was there during a really exciting time, 2006 to 2011, as Google was starting to become this global powerhouse. It was the absolute center of tech and innovation. So even though I was working for someone else, I was learning so much. It just felt like a complete business school education. At some point, though, I realized I was working. I had read Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap. I was working in my zone of genius about 20% of the time, even though I had a perfect on paper role. So mm-hmm. even though I was managing and rolling out global career development programs, I was coaching internally, I was teaching managers and directors how to coach. Just the level of meetings and email meant that I was only feeling kind of on fire 20% of the time. So that's, that's when I felt like deep down, I want to know that I've at least tried to do my own thing, even though I did not feel very confident that I was the entrepreneurial type. And I just gave myself six months of money of what I call pivot runway and said, let me know that I've tried. I was 27 at the time. 
And I figure if it doesn't work, I'll just go get another job. But I got to know that I tried. And um, same thing's happening now. Like the pandemic hit, all my corporate work got swept away. This was about 10 years later. All my speaking gigs were canceled two years into the future. And I was at such a parallel moment of when all the corporate work goes away, what's next? What do I want to do? And what are the big bets that I want to place on myself? And that's kind of where free time comes in. But it's just amazing how parallel the experiences have been. And you do a ton of stuff. I mean, you are, you're writing books, you're coaching, you run a group mastermind for female entrepreneurs. Is it just female or is it just primarily turns out to be female? No, I, I, in fact, I, I work really hard not to do anything in my business for women only. I love women and I want to be an example of a strong female entrepreneur, but I, I'm always really purposeful with my books and the design that the books are boys. <laughs> Maybe now that today's society, they wouldn't have no gender. Um, but like the blue colors. I kind of, I don't love that women get sort of pigeonholed as for women in the business realm. So I always try to almost overcorrect. And you're right though. I think, I think in general, more women even buy nonfiction books than men, more mm. women read books than men. The statistics show Last time I heard, it was like almost 60-40 in terms of who buys more books and reads more books. Although, I guess as women are, if women are raising young children, then a lot of the time to read mm. goes away. Um, but yeah, I'm doing a lot. I'm not doing one-on-one coaching anymore. That's part of an effort over time to remove myself as the bottleneck in the business. So doing things like licensing. I have a team of pivot coaches that support that book. And yes, the community that you mentioned, how we know our mutual friends, that's a way that I can work with a smaller group at a one-to-many of people who really, it's just such a great community of heart-based business owners. Um, but I realized that I, I actually needed to pull myself out of doing too much and having too many diversified streams of income so I could put my focus where I feel I can uniquely serve best and that's one-to-many. Mm. And so, with the podcasting, the speaking, the licensing, the coaching, the writing, what do you like to do the most? I mean, is your has your zone of genius or that that place that you want to spend your time changed or evolved over the years? I've always loved teaching and I've always loved creating things and tinkering with new technology. So it's funny you ask that because I love speaking. I love keynote speaking. I even love traveling. I love staying in hotels. When all that got canceled, though, it was kind of a relief that I wasn't on the road so much and that I could carve out a lot of time to create. That's something I love. So creating the book, creating the toolkit that goes with the book. I use software called Notion for that. And then using my voice. So even if I'm not on the road as a keynote speaker, I love podcasting. I um, I just love I love listening to podcasts. I'm obsessed with them. I listen every morning and every afternoon and um, podcasting feels like the best. My, my uh, currently my zone of genius, the effort I'm that's underway for me is can I grow it to be a viable source of income? Because right now, as I'm sure you have found with these types of things, it costs more money than it earns. Okay, so I'm challenged with this podcast because there is so much I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and I know. Where do we start? I have to jump from thing to thing because I want to like pinpoint the stuff I want to hit. One of the things I want to talk about is you talk about going from friction to flow. And one of the things that small businesses or entrepreneurs hit 
is the scale wall, right? So you're making money, but you're, you know, you're increasingly doing more and more things, but you may not be making the revenue to hire a team yet, but you know you need a team to grow. So it's like chicken before the egg thing. How do you, how do you counsel people about that? Do you, do you, you know, wait till you're making the money and then invest in people or do you invest in borrow money or, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul to get some people on board so you can make that leap in revenue. What are your thoughts about that? I know this is such a tricky question and it's not one that we can just answer once and keep moving because there are always these inflection points. Oh, and I, I feel it. I feel the pain of this question because I am was just recently in it and I'm currently in a place where I'm investing more in my team than I'm in earning now. And I think there was a point 10 years ago when I was just starting out, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing now. But now I'm a little more confident that if I take the risks now and hire the right team, I will free up more of the time I need to create the higher value, scalable things in the business. What I would suggest to someone who's asking this for the first time is identify the the real easy, obvious stuff that you hate. And I know for a fact, because I just hired a service that for $600 a month, probably even less, but you can get 15 hours. Like the one I'm using is called squared away. It's military spouses. The starter package, 15 hours, $600. I guarantee if you offload 15 hours of the stuff that you really hate, that drags you down, that drains your time, you could figure out ways to earn that back. And then some, if not double and triple the $600, whether it's by adding, if you are a coach, adding two more hours, if you're doing design work, maybe also raising your rates. Um, there's so much that you can do with this help that I think most entrepreneurs would find you would earn the cost back very quickly. That the nerves, it's almost scarier before you hire the person than it is once the ball's rolling. Mm. Because what what you might find is that as soon as you start delegating, it's like the waters rush in of, oh, how much other things you can add. and and other high value things. So even if you start small and build trust with small things that you'll start to discover areas of the business that are revenue generating, where you can still plug someone in and help take a lot of that burden off so that the owner really can do what they uniquely do. What do you do with your chicken and egg? I'm too, I just, I'm just uh, well, curious. And that's you why you probably it. heard the passion around the question, because I yeah. have, I, you know, two or three years ago, I came to that point and I decided to, um, to hire someone to help repurpose my content because that's where I was really struggling. I knew I had a tremendous amount of content. I wanted to repurpose across a broader range of platforms in a broader number of ways. And so I found someone, I actually bartered. I bartered coaching time for uh, marketing administration help and, and content repurposing. So I found a happy medium. I was paying a certain amount, but I was getting more in return because I was also offering four hours of coaching, which was, you know, at my rate, a nice chunk of change for the person on the receiving yeah. end. So it kind of, I, I found a way to, to make the leap. And, um, but it is, it's, it's a real struggle when you figure it out. And I was nail biting up 
to the moment yes. that I decided to do that. Another th- phrase you use a lot is delightfully tiny teams. And one phrase you used in the book, uh, Free Time, was the externalized mind, which for me actually was one of the biggest challenges when it came to starting to delegate. Because I was doing all these things myself. I had so many different processes of you know, creating thumbnails and editing video and all these things that I was doing myself. I was like, how do I even stop long enough to capture a standard operating process or step-by-step thing where I can train someone how to do this. And so how when you're when you're thinking of building a team, what do you suggest in terms of creating that externalized mind? How do you go about those first steps? Well, the first rule of thumb is no piece of information about the business should live only in someone's mind. And that's what happens that if we're if we work by ourselves, it's a little easier if you're just starting out. It can all live in your own mind, let's say you, the owner, but as soon as you do want to delegate it's, and it's, it gets risky. Even if you, the owner were to get sick, there's no way that someone could step in and help because it's all stuck in your mind. So not only is it eventually inefficient when you do start hiring, but it's dangerous because you're the bottleneck, you're the big risk in the business. And it leads to burnout because then as the business owner, we know that we can't step away. There's nobody who could step in. There's no backup. If I need, if I get sick or I step out, everything's going to grind to a halt, possibly including revenue. That's terrifying. So we already have enough pressure as business owners as is. So the whole idea of an externalized mind is nothing lives in anyone's head. Doesn't matter how, what a superstar your team member is, what they know about clients, what you know about clients and process. So an externalized mind, I, I use notion for this. Everything gets captured whether it's you know client records tasks having a tasks database operating process and procedures like you mentioned philip for different areas of the business with my team i'm always teaching them i call it the fiji test because i used to always say what if i got hit by a bus and that's just so violent and terrible (laughs) i didn't want to keep having the thought the question is if any one of us on the team were to get whisked to fiji for three weeks with no devices and no ability to give notice could somebody else step in and do your job seamlessly? Mm. And this happened recently. I had someone on my team tell me for personal reasons she needed to leave. And she was a linchpin. She was doing everything, podcast production, uh, pivot coaching, managing the whole pivot coaching program, all kinds of things. So I had a month while figuring out how to launch my book, I had a month to offboard her, figure out who I was gonna bring in. And in this case, I brought in two new people, a podcast production team, and an assistant. And thank goodness that we had documented as much as we had, because it meant that I was able to bring in these new people. There's always friction when onboarding and training, and it's it, it takes a tremendous amount of effort actually in the beginning, but at least we weren't starting from scratch with the documentation. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At byol.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit byol.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's byol.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. So let's talk about building the Jenny Blake brand a little bit. 
right? So I talk about brand strategy a lot and the importance of uh, of codifying the thinking behind something before you execute it. And before we hit record, you were talking about the fact that you actually did brand strategy around both of your books before you actually even executed the books or started marketing them or did the covers or anything. So talk about that process a little bit. You're actually the first person I've ever heard who, you know, positioned the fact that they were doing strategy around or brand strategy around a book project. Yeah. Well, I learned the hard way. My first book, Life After College, came out in 2011. And I was so excited. I got a book deal with a small but traditional publisher. And when they sent the first book cover design, I cried projectile <laughs> tears. I wanted to throw up. I couldn't believe that this project I'd been working on for three years, my baby, my heart and soul, my first book, this huge lifelong dream, it was a disaster what they sent me. I mean, icons floating in the sky like a latte and a set of free weights. And then they were getting impaled by the Empire State Building and some buildings below and the colors and the fonts. It was a effing disaster. And I tried to bring this cover back from the brink, but they were only willing to budge so much. It's like they didn't even know that how offensive what they had sent me. And that's when I realized, Philip, this was my aha moment about books and the book process. These books take such a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort. And then it's left up to who? Like an intern in the design department that sends a clip art cover that I could do better in Canva. There's no depth to the design. Truly, it's a mystery why publishers, the fiction side of things, they actually do better, more creative stuff. Mm -hmm. So when Pivot was coming out five years later, I said, I'm getting a jump on this. And in no way are they driving this process at all because the, the book cover, I don't need to tell you or your listeners or viewers, but the book cover is one piece of an ecosystem. And for business owners and nonfiction books, the book is a real asset in the business and it needs to connect to so many other things. So I didn't want some random person to create a random cover that then drives the, the visual voice of my business. And that's where I did decided that if I do a brand strategy, we would be handing them the brand guidelines and the cover suggestions. And still with Pivot, they sent me offensive clip art. And so still we had to go many rounds and the book cover was a compromise. And now with this third book, Free Time, because I went with an independent publisher, partly for this reason, we were able to go all in on the design and make it completely 100% without compromise. And both times the brand strategy, it was so much more than the visuals. It's also about what is the purpose of this brand and book? Who is it for? What are the values? With Pivot, there's a three-dimensionality and Escher-esque vibe to the lettering. It was custom lettering that the design team did. Everything has meaning to it. With free time, the F in the logo, it's wings. And it's about freedom and flight and the heart is a heart with a shadow heart based business like there's all these little touches that no one would know just from looking at it but i think that people have a sense of inner harmony i hope when they look at good design i mean that's what you teach too it's what you're here talking about and so it's it's been a real learning journey but something that i've realized has helped shape not just again not just the look and feel of the book but right down to the very essence of what i'm trying to communicate so that that essence comes through in every aspect, not just the text itself. Mm. So when you when you were actually just starting off your your digital entrepreneurial journey, 
you obviously you didn't start doing all these things at once, right? So you started with one, added on, added on, added on. What did that process look like in terms of the you know the pivot method? Your coaching, your writing, your speaking, your podcasting, your license, all that sort of stuff. Like, how did it build? The first, well, I started my first website and blog, Life After College, in two thousand five, while working at the startup and then Google. So I was always tinkering or early days on the internet and blogging and Twitter and stuff. Uh, the first thing when I left Google, the first thing that was my bridge income was coaching. And I did start teaching courses. I quickly realized that the selling small things to many people, this sort of like digital entrepreneur model didn't work for me. Mm. I wasn't great at it. I didn't, I didn't go for quantity in any sense of the word. Like, so it was always stressful to have to run my business centered around launches, launching courses, getting the right people, doing it again and again. It was just so tiring. So at some point I realized I want to get everything on monthly on a retainer of some kind. So the private community is built monthly pivot coaching with the team. They charge a monthly retainer good until canceled. Even my licensing to companies like Google is an annual licensing fee that recurs until canceled. This already took me outside of the launch model. And again, learning the hard way, just learning what led to burnout and exhaustion. And I also realized that a lot of in the business zeitgeist when I was starting 10 years ago was about diversified streams of income. And at one point I had 12 different streams and I felt like, okay, I'm doing it, I'm diversifying. But it was just so, it's too much, it's too much. I, I actually think that we do ourselves a disservice myself included by doing too many things. And that now for me, the effort is focus. And that's why I stopped one on one coaching, because I realized that's kind of taking me away from creating new podcast episodes, things that are going to go out to more than one person. And so but some people, that's not to say some people love one on one coaching, and, and they would that's the last thing they would remove. So I think it's also different for each person you know, what is it that you really love and you want to see when you look at your calendar for the next week or the next month? What is joyful to see on there? What do you look forward to? And so mine has just been an evolution in trying to pull myself away from the calendar, actually, <laughs> except when launching something and to create more scale and more um, recurring revenue in the business. Those are the big themes that I've been driving toward. So I know a lot of people who are starting or running master uh, membership things right now. It seems to be kind of like the trend. And but there are a number of different ways of approaching the launch of a membership. Obviously, when you launch it first time, you have to launch it. But then there are people who relaunch every quarter or open the doors for a day every quarter. There are people who do that annually. But there is a certain amount of continual sales that you have to do in order to keep a membership full and viable. How do you, does yours fill itself by word of mouth? I mean, you obviously have a lot of power behind that with where you are in your career. Do you do relaunches or recurring launches that open the doors to those communities or do you ever close them or what's the deal? I've done everything you've described. So I've had my community in various forms for six years. And yes, in the beginning, I did a launch. What I like about the launch model, I would say max twice a year, is that you get to bring in cohorts together. So like the March 2020 cohort, at that time, I did open the doors. I was doing... I was always trying things, but when I did the launch model twice a year was good. That felt like the right thing. 
and the March 2020 cohort, I mean, what a special group because they came in right as the pandemic was hitting and everything mm. was getting shut down. And it's nice to be able to welcome a group of people together and they feel a little bit less alone that they're not just the new one. Right now, it's kind of rolling enrollment, not not even for a good reason, just like I don't, I don't know, I don't always have the energy to do the whole launch thing and keep people on a wait list. I like to, I, I kind of figure, and of course with a launch model, you can have a deadline and you can do special events leading up to it. For me with launching the book, I'm going to be doing so much marketing and promotion for the book itself that I like having the doors open to the community. Now it's called BFF uh, because I figure we're all adults. Like if somebody reads my book or they listen to the podcast and they resonate and they want more of it and they want to connect with other amazing, like-minded, generous people, they know where to find us. Like, please enroll. And and it's been fun seeing more and more people joining recently because I think a lot of business owners want to create more free time and want support in doing that. So right now it's just rolling enrollment. Um, but I think both ways, both ways can work and both ways have strong pros and cons that aren't just about how much money you can make. That's also in service to who's joining. So there's two different concepts that are linked that you launched in both of your books, Pivot and Free Time. Pivot was high net growth and free time was high net freedom. So let's talk about freedom a little bit. What do you consider a high net freedom? Yes, someone who, so we all know the term high net worth individuals. These are people who've amassed a lot of financial resources. High net growth is that you're growth oriented. You actually, boredom is is one of the worst states to be in for someone who's high net growth. They're always learning, seeking information, trying things. That's why business itself is such an epic personal growth journey because it stretches us so much. High net freedom means we will turn down a client who's not a fit. We don't care how much money. I, I've had opportunities to work with big fortune 10 companies that were such a bureaucratic nightmare that almost there was no amount of money they could pay me to deal with the headaches. So high net freedom says that, I mean, I don't even like to pit money against time in that way. I feel like, you know, how do we build for both? How do we have abundant mm -hmm. earnings and abundant time? That said, we will often choose freedom over simply putting things in place to make more money. So if that means that you're coaching one day a week, but have four days a week to create things, that's going to work better for an entrepreneur who's high net freedom than someone who says, well, if I stack my week, four clients times five days, I can earn this much and that will be amazing. They're kind of sacrificing freedom, but they might be earning more. Mm. Talking about sacrifices, another pivot. I'm making another pivot. You've had an, you are having an amazing career. And so, but it's not always rosy. We all hit walls. We all have inflection points. So what are some of the difficulties or what was one particular difficulty that stands out for you that you've met in your entrepreneurial journey? Gosh, so, so, so many challenges <laughs> along, along the way. Oh, even the time I'm in right now is, is challenging in the sense of I get a lot of imposter syndrome that comes up around writing this book free mm. time about crazy smart systems. And that as I struggle, let's say juggling the business with the household, home front responsibilities, my first two previous books, I was single, single when I wrote them, single when I launched them. And now I'm married and we have a dog, a German shepherd and so much more responsibility. And I'm the earner for our family. So it's not just me anymore. It's not just me um, that I'm supporting. And it's not just me in terms of time considerations. 
So of course, always as an author, it's like we got a front row seat to the topic and the universe has her wily ways or you know, their wily ways that um, I think authors who choose to write about a topic it's like me, it's because of something that we're struggling with mm. and that the book isn't going to launch without a certain amount of friction to say, do you really grasp this stuff or not? And um, so right now I, I just am trying to navigate that tension of getting done what needs to be done in a 20 to 25 hour work week while keeping a sense of joy and lightness about it because mm. I don't want how could I launch a book about free time if I'm stressed and burnt out and tired and overwhelmed? And yet I personally find it very challenging just juggling other people. I I'm so introverted, like just talking to someone else in my house in the morning is kind of stretches me. <laughs> um, going on dog walks in New York City, there's so much interaction in people. So um, trying to stay recharged. Especially if you have a big German Shepherd. I've done that. I yeah. lived in Brooklyn for 15 years and walking down the street with yes, 215 pound Shiloh Shepherds is like, you get stopped and pulled into restaurants. <laughs> That's true. And you've got people's childhood stories. Oh my gosh. Their shepherd that they had. And so, yeah, it's I think like this friction. Oh, and I'm investing more than I've ever had mm. in my business. So I purposefully went in the red so that I could dedicate 100% focus to creating this book. So it's just a, one of those nerve wracking times. I'm, I'm really in a time of transition and creative friction, but that, that line of friction of creative friction versus excessive friction is, is thin. Let's talk about imposter syndrome just for a second before we tie things up. And I've had a lot of conversations about imposter syndrome and just recently, in fact, and it seems to me that the more accomplished somebody is, I've, I've worked with CEOs, I've worked with SVPs of major corporations, the higher up people go, the more imposter syndrome seems to inflect in, in, be inflicted upon them. How do you how do you view imposter syndrome and how do you counsel your membership community to to address that as they um, as they grow, as they become more accomplished? In Pivot, I share the Dunning-Kruger effect, maybe you know it, that people who are more intelligent rate themselves lower like if, when they do IQ tests. And then those who are less intelligent rate themselves higher. I think imposter syndrome is, it's so expected if you're a growth-oriented person because we know what we don't know. And those of us who practice beginner's mind or are avid readers, Ira Glass talks about that gap between taste and talent. Mm. We have good taste. Like I read The New Yorker. I love The New Yorker. Okay, great. But when I go sit down to write, I'm not spitting out New Yorker quality writing. And so I, I don't try to get rid of imposter syndrome. I think it's actually helpful to hear others talking about it because it just shows that we're human. And I kind of feel that there's a correlation with imposter syndrome and humility and a sense of um, surrender because I don't know, I don't, I don't know how anything I'm creating is going to do or is going to land. Mm. I have moments of confidence. And then I have moments where I'm just envisioning what the one star reviews are going to say, you know, <laughs> and it's all part of the process. So it's not something I just try, I try to get rid of. I just try not to I don't let it run my life. Like I basically, it's all there. It's not going to go away. I just try to keep moving and make sure I keep taking action. It's the only Joan Bays said action is the antidote to despair. That's, that's basically how I live in this creative regard. Yeah. I personally feel like confidence is created by doing. It doesn't just show up. 
you do something over and over and over and it builds confidence. Confidence is built. Yes. And, and nothing is perfect. Nothing is ever perfect. Like, I don't know if you have ever struggled with perfectionism, some more than others, but <laughs> I'll just crack like, up at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> it's like every interview I sign off of, whether I'm the host or the interviewee, I, I immediately know what I could have done differently. I probably have other blind spots. I'm not even seeing or, or recognizing what I could have done, but it, I just can't let it stop me. It's, I can't let it paralyze me. So like everything I produce has flaws and isn't perfect. And I pretty much always know what's wrong with it, but I don't have the time to get everything. There's a point of diminishing returns of getting everything. There's no such thing even as perfection. And so that's the other thing I'm always, always having to see that it's not perfect and kick it out the door anyway, no matter how big or small. All right. We're going to move into something that I've just started to do in my podcast. It's called the rapid fire 10 and it is 10 quick questions that I need you to answer in one, two words as quickly as you can. Number one, what's your spirit animal? A dragon. Falcor the luck dragon. From okay. Everest. He's got a name. Morning person or night person? Morning. Beach or mountains? Beach in the shade. Dog person or cat person? Dog person. What's your secret talent most people don't know that you can do? Typing fast. Favorite song of all time? Anything by Pearl Jam or Eddie Vedder. Let's go with Wishlist by Eddie, uh, Pearl Jam. Okay. Favorite place in the world? Oh, and also Fool's Russian. Um, okay, favorite place in the world? New York City. The one and thing- And Bali, food Bali. See, I'm a Libra, I have to have two <laughs> answers for everything, dang it. What's the one thing you would love to master? Oh my goodness, I don't know. The thing that came to mind is communication, but that's so boring. We'll come to back to it. Who's your hero? I'd see my, my parents in different ways. And the one thing you would tell your 20 year old self? Smile. Cool. Okay. So final question. Do you have a mantra or some sort of manifesto that you try to live your life by? I do. Yeah. I, I have, I have many little mantras that keep me going. One that I appreciate that I really learned strongly from Tosha Silver, who wrote a beautiful little book called Outrageous Openness is just this offering. May this unfold for the highest good of all involved. And I remember in New York City, I was single and I was really wanting to be in a relationship and I caught a wishy out of the air. And I remember thinking I could wish that this relationship is going to work out, but that would be the wrong wish that at the end of the day, I think there's one wish that I could always have, which is may it work out for the highest good of all involved. Mm. And why would I want to be with someone that doesn't want to be with me or if it's not good for me to even be with this person and that. Why well, wish for anything? She, Tosha Silver talks about the grocery list for God that a lot of manifestation advice teaches. Even book sales, something like that. I mean, yeah, I could write down a number and pluck it out of the sky, but I would so much rather that the book find the people that need to read it, that can benefit. That's so much more joyful to me, just this notion of surrender, hoping and, and praying and sending good thoughts for the highest good for all involved. That's really where I find a sense of equanimity. Love it. Jenny Blake, author, podcaster, membership group leader, coach. <laughs> I mean, I can just go on. Author of Pivot and Free Time. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Where can people find you? Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here and I've loved all your questions. Now I need to think about the ones that got me stuck <laughs> for the rapid fire. Um, anyone who's interested, search for Free Time wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you go to itsfreetime.com slash book, you can pre-order your hardcover and get the audiobook for free and give one to a friend. So that's itsfreetime.com slash book, and you'll get the audiobook free and can gift one to a friend. Awesome. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah. Thank you so much, Philip. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.